Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I have a special, special guest coming onto the podcast, the executive director of the Maryland Film Festival at the SNF Parkway Theater. Please welcome Sandra L. Gibson. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Rob, for having me on. Absolutely. And I'm glad we were able to chat a little bit more. Like it, it's just teeth on this side of the, <laughs> the visual. So that's that's what's happening. Um, but yeah, thank you. And um, really, really dig what your, your work is. I've been kind of reading on the background, but I want to start off by um, having the folks kind of get dipped, the listeners get dipped. So could you give us yeah. your those those vital stats and describe your background and the, the mission of the Merlin Film Festival? Give, give us all of that right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my background is pretty varied. I've been at this for a very long time, a couple of decades in Southern California and a couple of decades here in Maryland. I'm a musician by training. I'm a pianist, clarinetist. I play a bunch of non-Western instruments. I'm also an ethnomusicologist, but I began working in film very early on in my career. UCLA, then American Film Institute. I actually ran the Seven Acre Campus and the West Coast operation nice. uh, in the early 80s after they moved from Washington, D.C., there. Uh, so I've been around a long time uh, in the field in a variety of guises, uh, running big industry associations to smaller organizations like this. And my favorite, I think, is the on-the-ground local organizations. I've run arts councils. I've done a lot of things uh, in my time. And so coming here was sort of a return to film, return to Baltimore. I did a little stint at the Reginald F. Lewis uh, in, when Skip Sanders was there and they brought in the Kinsey Collection. Uh, I come to Baltimore for jazz because it's one of the few places where you can st still see jazz in a warehouse or in a supper club. Um, and Baltimore is just live and energized all the time. And so Maryland Film Festival, I actually came, they, they had this new building, the beautiful Parkway Theater, which is 106 years old. It wow. opened as the Parkway in October 1915 with a film called Zaza. It was designed after the West End theaters in London uh, and theaters in New York. It's like a vaudeville house. Yeah. And when, when we got it in 2014, uh, it was in really a state of disrepair. So we did an $18.2 million renovation. I wasn't here for that. Uh, I'm benefiting from all of that uh, largesse. And beautifully restored and then added two brand new um, stories second and third floor and small screening rooms that double as classrooms during the day for students at Maryland Institute College of Art and Johns Hopkins Film and Media. Um, and uh, we really mix it up here. We got just under 600 seats. We have a full bar and a lounge and it's intended to really be a film center. And we're taking it a little further. We really wanna explore the expanse of cinematic form, the expanse of moving image art. Because filmmakers today, particularly filmmakers of color, are not just making single-channel work. Mm -hmm. They're making multi-channel work. They're exploring virtual reality, AI, augmented reality. They're exploring hybridity, uh, multimedia in new and different ways. And we think our audiences and Baltimoreans should really experience that. We think they should be able to engage with that. We think students should be able to engage with it. So what we're doing right now, we still have our theaters open. We still show the Batmans and, <laughs> and the, uh, the nowhere ends, the, the small indie all the way to the big blockbuster, but we're activating every space in this building. So we've put up scrims on the North Charles walls yeah. uh, and we're going to be um, with projectors running multimedia works that you can see from outside and inside 
That'll start this summer. That's amazing. Uh, we're going to be doing exhibitions. We just took out an exhibition as part of the Asian North Festival uh, by Jan Jin Kaisen, a very well-known South Korean artist. And she had two-dimensional work, a multimedia installation. We actually built a wall in one of our lounges. And then we rotated her single-channel films in two of our screening rooms. So we're trying to mix it up and find ways for this place to become more porous yeah. and more permeable and more inviting and to create a kind of sense of belonging here. I mean, the mission is broad. It's bring filmmakers, films, and audiences together in a unique way, an inclusive way that reflects the uniqueness of Baltimore. And we contributed to the dialogue about film and filmmaking globally, but that's a pretty broad mission, and I want to get it on the ground. How do we create a sense of belonging? As Rada Blank came in here and did a program with um, DeWanda Wise, who was the lead actress in Spike Lee's recreation of She's Gotta Have It as yeah. a TV series. And we did a little premiere with Nawanda. She's from here. She grew up and went to a local high school. And I'll never forget it. Rada got on the stage and she said, the parkway is my birthright. If you don't feel that, if you don't feel comfortable coming here, you got to make it your own. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget it because that's the kind of spirit we want to engender, community ownership, some sense of belonging. We've got to redouble our efforts. I think we have a responsibility to this community for this, the Parkway, to be your house. Yeah. And so how do we, and that's a lot of shifting and changing. That's not what Western European art houses do. You know, we curate the program, we put it up, you buy your tickets, we bring a filmmaker in, you have a discussion. So we're really trying to infuse this and turn curating on its head yeah. and really reach into the community more. Um, certainly pay more attention. We spent the last two years really thinking about how do we lift up filmmakers and their work today in the pandemic, not just globally, but here in Baltimore. Yeah. What's the set of needs and services? So uh, we're um, doing town halls. We're gonna launch a series uh, called Open Works where you can have an audience to, you can showcase your film. Works in progress. Many filmmakers don't have a place to just sit around the table, screen their film, get some feedback. Yeah. Um, just really trying to break down the hierarchy and barriers um, and so that there's a, a different kind of openness here. And that's the same with the festival. Because you can, you can take down this mission a lot of different ways. Uh, my way of thinking about it is this permeability, this accessibility, and also being out in the community. So this summer, we're going to be Parkway Outdoors. We are going on the road and taking films into the community, into neighborhoods where there are movie theaters, and we'll be at a park site, outdoors, in the open. We got a grant, a couple of grants, actually, to put together an inflatable screen, nice. a mobile DCP. So, and, I, and I think being in the community, everybody won't come here, and we only got 600 seats. <laughs> <laughs> And then we're, you know, we do concerts. So we were part of the Tupac Shakur citywide celebration yeah. in September. We had Boom Bap Society. So we, we really try to do what we can for indie music, um, poetry, uh, whether it's uh, sometimes we have a speaker series. We did a great maker series with Made in Baltimore. Yeah. And it was actually their network of makers came and did a talk. And then we did a pop up in the lounge. So we're really trying to look at the way that we use this space to benefit the community in, in new and different ways. Um, and I think the uniqueness and diversity and intersectionality of Baltimore has to be on display here. Yeah. Whether it's Baltimore artists or it's artists coming in 
from outside. And we're bringing emerging, established, and iconic voices who would not otherwise be in Baltimore yeah. and, and, and otherwise engage with our community or who are just not visible. So that's, that's part of this era of you know, meeting and achieving the mission for me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And def, def, that definitely aligns with my values in doing this podcast that aligns and being on brand right there in Station North. It's, it's, one, yeah. it's one of those points where you're near very, you're near very various like intersection points where people from out of town can come in. You have a train station right there. You have 80, yes. you have all of these different access points. And then it's right there, almost concentrated. You, you have impact hub there, motorhouse, you have schools within disc colleges within distance. Micah's over there and you're able to kind of bring all of these different ideas and I think what you described there with some of the efforts that the Parkway is doing it's representative of all of these different ideas different voices and it's like let's let's put it out there visually let's let's do this in this way and I like I, I had a conversation recently and I'm thinking of putting together a piece um, about just different places that are frequent and like, how do yeah. I, how do I class those based on certain criteria? So like, let's say if it's mm -hmm. a coffee shop, do, are they their own roaster? How do I class that versus another mm -hmm. place that's their own roaster? When I look at the parkway, it to me is much more than a movie theater and much more than a movie it, house. And it's an event location for me. When I go yes. there, it's, it's for an opening. It's for a, a screening. Um, I think the last time I was there, um, it was like maybe almost, almost a year ago I had, because I've just been super busy, but I went there for something really, really big and really cool. I went there for that, that talk with, uh, it was a uh, candy man. And, and I was yes. just like, I, I was coming back had, from, yes. <laughs> I was coming we back from Rhode Case Island. Case and Ryan Bowen and B. Sharice yeah. and Travis did that fantastic. Let me give you a little history of Candyman. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that little film was for that night. Yeah. And it was so great. We played it in front of the film the entire three weeks we had the film. It's and that great. was one of our opening events. And it's a good example of when we kind of eventize and add. There's nothing like it's great to see the film on the big screen. That's mm -hmm. crucial, that communal experience. But when you can, we can connect you up to creatives who are even, if, whether they're involved with the film or not, and you start to hear their ideas and perspectives. And the audience was really, mm -hmm. it was hopping. Yeah. The energy was really palpable in the audience. That was, a, I'm glad you were here. That was a great night. Yeah. And I, it, you know, all of us, I think we're all capable of seeing our missions as more than this pr primary responsibility to arts, culture, film. That's a responsibility, sure. but it's a real responsibility to the community and contributing directly to positive change in a city like Baltimore. It, you know, really connected with and contributing to the vibrancy and vitality. It's, we can't do everything, yeah. but one kind of anchor, and we have to see ourselves in the mix with everything else going on in Station North and the whole city. It's an ecosystem. So I care about the ecosystem, not just what's in the confines of the parkway. Absolutely. Um, so I want to I want to go I want to step back a little bit. Um, yeah. So 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 tell me about where you grew up and maybe one of those um, <laughs> early experience experiences, like recognizing like like it, it's it's a it's a more refined version of what was the first time you realized movies were cool. But what was the <laughs> that, that earliest experience in recognizing that films films were a, a form of art? Oh, wow. Recognizing it as a form of art definitely came later. That was, I think that was teens for me, but I, I was experiencing movies at a pretty young age. I had older cousins in town. I grew up in a very small town of 14,000 people. 
in northeastern Ohio, about a mile and a half from Lake Erie. Oh, wow. A conservative community. My parents are from the Caribbean. They came to New York, and my mother had a sister who came directly from Jamaica to this little town, Painesville, Ohio. And my parents visited and said, people have houses with gardens and yards, not just apartments. They moved there. Eight West Indian families moved there in this little tiny town. We had one movie theater downtown called the Lake Theater. Uh, Eventually, there were multiplexes built when I was in high school and going out to college. So I was aware of film at a very young age because I had older cousins who would take. I had a cousin um, my same age, and I have uh, three sisters and a brother, but my second and third sister, we, we, we saw Beatles films. We saw a lot of the Disney films, the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang stuff, whatever was coming in. Um, and I saw movies in big movie palaces in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, probably about the age of, I guess, probably 10 or 11 or 12. Um, and, and again, it was sort of Disney stuff, family films. Yeah. Uh, and we, we watched them on television. But I've always been fascinated by stories. I always want to be transported. And sometimes I want to be live and real because my favorite stories, quite frankly, are the real ones, the documentaries. That's my right. absolute favorite. And I don't think I saw a documentary probably till I was in college, maybe something in high school. But I was experiencing near- movies from a really young age. Yeah, I go back to um, one of my, and maybe this has something to do with kind of what I was describing to you before we, before we got started. I, I, one of the earliest movies I remember were, uh, was uh, it, my parents g- like gave me dinner, and uh, I, was like, I was probably three or four. And whatever Friday the 13th movie was going on, it's like, yeah, you go here, sit here, watch this by yourself. We're having fun. We're doing, you know, adult stuff. And I was like, this, this might not have been, this might have been the best. However, for like five straight uh, Halloweens, I won as Jason Voorhees. I think it had an impact on me. <laughs> that was my art. <laughs> that was my chitty, chitty, bang, bang. No. Well, I got to tell you, Rob, it's funny because I, I told you I have, I, I have two sons and I have a stepson and my youngest son who, is, he's an arborist, actually, an American you. I'll never forget when he was four. We were in California, and we were going somewhere, and he goes, I, I got, Mom, i got to wait for all the blood and guts part. And it was Terminator. It was a Terminator film. Mm. He, he, I, and I thought, I am ruining this kid. He's four. <laughs> he loves blood and guts. <laughs> you know, it was the same thing. We, we were pretty open with what they watched. Yeah. When it came to music, if it had a... Uh, you know, if it was hip hop or rap music with a violent label, yeah. I said, I'm only buying it if you listen to it with me. Mm-hmm. So that tempered, that tempered his choices on that when he was 10, 11 and 12. But, you know, everybody is, has so much early exposure right now. It, it's, it's, you, there's access to everything and very young kids are on their phones and experiencing uh, stories and films at a very young age and pretty potent, complex stories that I'm not even sure they altogether understand. So I, I think I grew up, you know, my, my parents were, were a little more conservative. So I don't want to say we were sheltered, but they're, they're, what we viewed was curated by them. Yeah. <laughs> what we went to, they, they really did, um, uh, they, they really did, I don't want to say protect us, but they, they were really careful about what we watched at what age. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
my, my parents had that that kind of same vibe. And ultimately, I think what I'm what I'm kind of echoing in is this this notion that you know some of the movie tastes early on and maybe how that shifts. It, it definitely comes from it's a familial thing. It's like oh well, yes. my cousins put me on to this, and I remember it was music and movies, yes. and that yes. came from the cousins and um, some of the things that we maybe should not have watched. Which it was really interesting because. It wasn't really the violence part, right? Like my dad, he, Marines, he's like, oh yeah, John claude Van Damme, watch all of them. That's what we're doing. This yeah. is Friday. Yeah. And But yeah. when it came to like movies that had like a really strong like black cast, or, like, like a, a large black cast, um, if it was too vulgar, they wouldn't let us watch it. So I remember yeah. specifically, we could not watch Harlem Nights. It was like, no, you got to be older to watch this. Yeah, to watch this. No, those are the kinds of, of um, decisions my parents were making, too, about films and content. And I think they also wanted to be cautious about just the content and how we talked about it and how it was portrayed. I have this. I have this other question. Uh, when we when we're looking for finding our calling, right? And I learned that calling is. It's vocation. It's, it's, it's deeper than, oh, I want to do this as a career for a period. It, it, it has to be a through line, I think, in some of the activities. They may be various things, like somebody's calling might be to be able to create, and they may have uh, a job in various areas, but it's not just, oh, I want to be a musician this time. It's like, no, I want to paint. I want to create this. I want to create that. That might be their calling to be a creator. Tell me, tell me about a time where you were encouraged to like explore, because I think it's it's not always a direct line when you're finding that calling. So tell me about a time where, you know, yeah. you were encouraged to explore, which maybe kind of led to to the work that you're doing now. You know, we 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 uh, there were five of us, and we we're a close knit family. We had all these other West Indians, so we we did showcase nights. We all played music. We danced. So there was a lot of activity all the time and a lot of play and um we all took music lessons at a very young age but we were encouraged to explore everything i mean i'm a drum majorette i twirl fire i you know i've had experiences you know some of my couple of my sisters did cheerleading uh we played sports i've played tennis my parents put us in everything that yeah. they could possibly put us in uh, they were big on education big on get your education first. Mm -hmm. We don't care what you do, but get the education. Be knowledgeable about it. And I always tell my sons, I don't care what you do, but if it's driving a truck, I want you to own the company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so that, that encouragement and exploration, and I, I went to, we went to public schools and we were, it was a small district, but they had a music program, they had an art program. So I took art, I wasn't very good at it, but I loved it. And so we really had a lot of creative experiences and excursions. You know, we went places, we traveled, we saw other places. So your mind is opened up, your world is opened up. Um, you know, whether you're taking a physics class or a chemistry class, you're, you're exploring and you're on a track of exploration. Uh, so I felt very fortunate to have grown up in that environment with parents and brothers and sisters where we, and, and our, it, it was, you know, we, it was it was not only a lot of fun, but it was pretty rich mm -hmm. in terms of its breadth uh, and what we engaged in. I have always loved teaching, and so I wanted to be a teacher, hmm. and I loved music. So my first instinct was music teaching, 
And I got my first degree in that and, and started out that way and then found that I didn't like all the administration and the, you know, music teachers at that time. And Ohio was like 49th of the 50 states in how it funded music yeah. and, and the way that it was supporting teachers. And I just felt like, you know, I was a, 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 a monitor and an administrator. Uh, my great love in the teaching was middle schoolers and composing with them. And so I was always trying to do these kinds of creative activities and not following the rule books. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, that is also me. Uh, I'm always going to challenge, uh, you know, what's in place and want to turn it over and look at it from the outside. As you should. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's just the way I operate and the way I'm wired. Um, but I think what I found in college where I, I was in a school of music was I loved the performance, I loved the learning, but I, it, was, it made me really nervous. I, did, I didn't get the juice from performing. I could mm. perform, but it was, I didn't get this, I'm on fire, I gotta be on the stage. I found that for me, it was putting it all together. And, mm -hmm. and my commitment really became, out of, out of all the experiences I had, how do I leverage my experiences to help other artists? Yeah. So for me, I, my quest has been for a very long time Rob, how can an artist in the United States have an idea, get that idea made, and own the final disposition of it? Hmm. What's that co-location of resources look like in the U.S.? Because we don't have that system. It's pieced together. It's very hard to get your work made. It's very hard to carry out your idea and expression and then own it and control what happens to it. In yeah. film, it's crazy. In the visual arts, it's crazy. In the performing arts, there are more unions, more, there's more apparatus, there's more, it's more associative. Yeah. So it's a little bit better, but it, we're a commodity in the United States. And I, th and and I, I, think, think, I, and I think it's ecosystem. And I think that's what I'm seeing as, I guess, my medium is being blown out. You have varying views on what it is and what it isn't. And, you yeah. know, some people say, oh, it's an art, so we can fund it. And other places will say, oh, no, it's a marketing tool or it's not not this, it's not that. And But at the same time, you see companies buying up podcasts and buying up that whole yeah. like here's your let me get your catalog let me let me get this from you and one of the things i was mentioning to you bef before that and it was another thing that stuck out that it, you were saying like it, that just I, I i felt it i felt it it was just kind of this the paraphrase is this notion like not really feeling like that that being on fire being on a stage wanting to like help people realize their creative you know pursuits yeah. and that is something that i've really gotten into like i've I realized, you know, when I was a younger being have been on a stage and like I'm talking about like earliest five being like a, an MC for for some graduation thing. And I was like, <laughs> I just don't know any better, you know, and now like I like doing it. I need to do it more to know whether I'm comfortable or uncomfortable with it. However, the stuff that I like, I like the strategy behind things. I like, well, this yeah. would be cool. I can curate this. This is and I've moved more into this kind of cultural curator spot versus being purely a podcast. I do much more than that. And especially the way that they've been deprecated because 
podcasts are very DIY and yes. you can figure out, you can do your own thing and it's personality driven, you know, and it's information in there and things of that nature, but really it's personalities. If I just didn't have a personality and ask you some monotone questions, we wouldn't be having the type of conversation we had prior to this and, and during this interview. That's and true. It's, it's something that's in there. And so it's much more than just this banal vanilla pod. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just going to say the one thing I want to tag on is I, I just know I'm a natural producer and what producers do well, creative producers, executive producers, I bring the money, I bring the resources and I know how to put it together. And I love putting it together and making it happen. It just is, gives me the greatest joy and it floats my boat. It makes crazy as it seems. So I love the messy vitality of that. <laughs> That's what really drives me. Yeah. Uh, yes, I can talk on a stage. I'm happy to, I get too nervous at the performance, but I'm, I'm, I'm very conversant. I'm fine to introduce things. But for me, it's that getting in there and putting something together and making it happen. And that end result and that process, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, I, I wrapped up one of the movie screenings that I did, the most recent one. And sometimes I just go off on a, not a tangent per se, but go off and I reference something that's super weird just to see who who's in my tribe that's there. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, good night and God bless. And it's like, did you just quote Russell Simmons? I was like, maybe, maybe. I have a good night now. <laughs> Drop safe later. It's like, you're stupid. <laughs> um, so... Let's talk about the um, the festival a little bit in terms of. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's start off with um, how many. How does the submission process work? How many do you get, and, and what are maybe yeah. two to three like qualities that you really look for in in a submission? Because I, I would imagine it's a lot that come in. I would imagine that, that review process is pretty wild. So, so enlighten me a little bit there. Yeah, and I, I have to tell you, I'm I'm intentionally not involved with selecting the film. So I see a few of them. Sure. Uh, artistic director really drives that in our programming team. But we, we get anywhere from 900 to 1,000 submissions. Wow. And, and it wasn't always that way. In, during the pandemic, it was down the last two years by two, 300. But we went right back up. We had 900 submissions for this year. And we were concerned because we, the, the industry is disrupted the pipeline of films is disrupted and filmmakers are trying to make their way in a very very challenging time mm-hmm. um so it's a lot of submissions the filmmakers do pay a small fee to they pay less if they're from baltimore we've privileged baltimore uh and opened up slots for baltimore and given more waivers there uh, but they submit through film freeway they have to submit a completed film we have a 45 member screening committee and even that we've uh, really rejiggered and expanded this year to really represent Baltimore in a different way and to represent filmmaking in a different way. And it's not all filmmakers, there are community members on here. Um, they all view batches of films, batches of 50, 60 films. And most of the films submitted in that 900 are short films, yeah. but there's a lot of feature films too. So this year in the festival, we are playing 130 shorts organized in 16 programs. That's one of the largest contingents yeah. of shorts we've ever had. And then we have 21 features. And not many of the features came out of submissions. Uh, we lost a few. We took half of the features were to come out of submissions this year. And we lost them to other festivals. And filmmakers are making their decisions differently. They're waiting for con. They're wait, you know, so this is part of the disruption in the industry that we're, we're just navigating right now. But that thousand, Every one of those films is seen by at least three people. Wow. Yeah. 
so that there's a real consideration of the, the film is this a first time filmmaker and their debut film. That's different from um, Matt Porterfield from Baltimore or Stanley Nelson, who's, you know, an Oscar nominated black documentary filmmaker who calls us up and says, can I have my film at your festival? You know, um, So it runs the gamut. So when you're considering what, what you're looking for is where is this filmmaker in their career? Yeah. And if, and if it's really nascent, because festivals, you don't have enough time and often room to bring everybody around. It's a different kind of excursion and experience than the prep we can do for an audience for a film we're going to have for two or three weeks. Sure. So, you know, if the, if the film is a, a debut film, first time filmmaker, and it's not quite there yet, can, can we um, introduce it to an audience and provide that context? Yeah. Is that going to work in the festival? And then there's a mix you're looking for. We don't want 100 documentaries. Uh, we have people who like all kinds of things. I mean, my artistic director said to me, I'm looking for more comedies. I can't find any <laughs> comedies. So many of the films are dark. And I said, well, this may be where people are at. So it's, it's that mix and blend of narratives and types of stories. We're absolutely leading into Black, Indigenous, Brown, Latinx, people of color, queer, uh, trans, we want to have that breadth of creatives involved yeah. in who are making films today. Women, you know, women are greatly underserved in the industry, mm -hmm. as are people of color, as are indigenous people. And so we really look for those films. They still have to be completed films and good films. Uh, and the, the screening committee ranks them. And we had an artistic director this year and um, three guest programmers um, uh, who, who did the shorts films and helped with narrative features. So there's a lot of eyeballs on this beyond the screening committee, yeah. really sorting through and having conversations. So the other thing we did this year were a number of meetups, virtual and in-person with the screening committee. Never done this before. People sort of did their batches of film, sent in their reviews. These were conversations where we showed some of the films and people talked about their favorites, really looking for common language and where the differences were and talking about that. So real conversations about the content, about the film, what the filmmaker was trying to do. So I think it was a very considered process this year. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have a reputation for focusing on emerging filmmakers, the filmmakers who are earlier in their career, we're staying with that because they yeah. don't get these kinds of opportunities. Our audiences love it. Uh, we are noted for short films. And short films are people too, as my artistic director always <laughs> likes to say. They don't often get distributed. So we're a real home for short films at this festival and year round. Uh, that's why we have so many this year and we're, we're bringing so many of those filmmakers in. Um, so we, we were thrilled to get 900 submissions this year. And then, then we get folks who do call us up. Yeah. I've just finished, I've been, we have veterans who've been with the festival year after year. Can I send you a trailer? Could you take a look at this? Would you consider it? Uh, that happens too. Yeah. And we're sourcing from other festivals. So we do have a couple of films from Venice, from Cannes last fall, from New York International Film Festival Sundance, South by Southwest. It's not a lot. Uh, we try to go with the submissions that we get and mix it up a bit because all those festivals are hybrid and have virtual screenings. So you sure. can see some of them there. Um, yeah. 
Wow. But it's it's a it's a real labor of commitment and love. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, as I'm hearing, I was like, I'm interested. How many again? Like, ah, uh, mm, uh, but also, yes. yeah. I think your minimum. <laughs> I think your minimum is at least one batch. I have. To, I don't have that right. And so we'll put a call. We, this was the other thing. We got to that 45. We did an open call for the first time ever this year. Nice. Yeah. For yeah. screening committee members. Again, this is all about inclusion, and yeah. we don't know everybody. Right. We're a small organization. We have a certain kind of reputation for not being very inclusive, I think. Yeah. And and the industry itself is closed. So it, it, this is all in an attempt to open this up, invite more people to participate. And they all did extraordinary work. That's great. You know, we, we have another program like that that I quickly tell you about, Rob. Sure. It's Please. the Maryland um, Filmmakers Fellowship Program. Jed Dietz, our founder, started this with Sundance Institute in 1996. A lot of people don't know about it. Sundance has not only their festival, they have all these labs. So they have an indigenous lab, they've got an art of nonfiction lab, and they have feature film labs for screenwriting, directing, producing. So we have had an engagement with them since 1996, where they send out of the script writing and director's lab, five or six scripts and community members read them, not film people. Yeah. Decide on a script and we give a $10,000 fellowship. It's actually now more. So that was going on through 2020, yeah. and I raised some funds to quadruple that. It's a $40,000 fellowship now. It's amazing. It's 15 up front for pre-production and get your film going, rewrite the script, and then it's 25 on the back end if you finish your film, giving you money nobody has when they've asked their brother, their mother, their cousin, <laughs> their company to get the film made. Nobody has any money to get it to market, so there's a $25,000 marketing fund. Yeah. So we made the first the first of those awards last year and this year. That is um, amazing. And and it's a it's a little known program. It is connected to Sundance, but it's just community members. And I think you have, we have to value the knowledge and the experience of our community. And so we we say y'all come. Yeah. Uh, we, we we have some filmmakers on the screening committee and some people who know film, and they add to the conversation. So for those who don't, everybody's learning. And everybody's perspectives are invaluable. So that's going to be a uh, podcast to putting a movie together soon. Uh, just a stretch <laughs> over here. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I oh, we got plenty of people who can do that podcast. I got some <laughs> on my board: Alyssa Blunt Moorhead, Ramona Diaz, who did One Thousand Cuts, this amazing documentary two years ago about yeah. Maria Ressa, yeah. who is a Nobel Prize-winning journalist who runs Rappler in the Philippines and was. Um, she was convicted uh, by President Duterte and his regime uh, for, you know, breaking their rules, uh, which don't allow a whole lot of freedom of the press. Right. And so this is that she was the subject that felt. So Ramona's been around a long time. We got a lot of makers. Nia Hampton, who runs Black Femme Supremacy Festival. Uh, we're involved with a lot of people who are making their films and who, who could fill a podcast or two <laughs> about how to get it made, especially today, because it's challenging. Okay. That then, w I think I think a further discussion would work. Yeah. Uh, so. And how to get it seen, that's another one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's a problem. <laughs> so I guess, I guess the, a good stopping point would be, I, I want to really, um, we're going to plug later so we can really get that in. So I guess yeah. um, we should hit that, those rapid fire questions. How do you feel about that? Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, and I hope you'll plug the festival because it the films 
are amazing. This oh, year. that's 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 gonna be we're we're saving that for the end. That's gonna be for that's gonna be the okay. last the okay. last uh, what is it uh, <laughs> digestive or what have you. <laughs> uh, rapid fire. Let's go rapid fire. <laughs> so I got I got uh I got four of them. Um, what's the favorite uh, favorite country you visited? You mentioned travel earlier. Was a uh... yeah, yeah, and I, I did a lot of traveling. I ran a performing arts industry association, and I took it global on six continents. So I have two. Wow, it's hard. It's hard, but I, I think two immediately pop in: Brazil. Mm. Um, I was there for a World Culture Forum meeting that the Ford Foundation set up. It's an it, that is an extraordinary place of extremes. Um, and so uh, I was in Salvador de Bahia and uh, near Recife, which is a software hub. And that's, that is just an amazing, colorful, wildly diverse uh, and exciting place. I could live there. I just love it. The people are beautiful. It's beautiful. And the other unbelievable experience I had before I came here was six years working on a U.S.-China project. And I went to China for the first time before I did the project in 2011. Uh, and I had, had an engagement with uh, some cultural ministries uh, throughout China in this industry association that I ran. But this project took me into the country and I ran a design team. We were building a 12-acre classical Chinese garden in the U.S. National Arboretum in D.C. The land was donated by Congress. It's a, it's a binational project. Mm -hmm. And I ran the first foundation and got it up and running. And the construction design done, it's at 100% construction design before the Trump administration came in and put it on ice. So I, I have visited four or five cities in China for extended stays. And it, that, was, that's, that was also extraordinary. It, it is, it is a pl I don't know that I'd say I could live there, but I love going there and getting to know the people on the ground. Not the, and I wasn't working with well, everything as government there, but I wasn't working with the top people in in the Chinese government. Certainly, everything is connected to the government, but just I have some long term enduring friends out of that experience. And then my other favorite, of course, is is, uh, is southern Spain. I'm in love with Spain, <laughs> Barcelona, the south of Spain. I could absolutely live there. It's <laughs> great. That's and I great. and I love my people in the West Indies too. My mom's from Cuba, my dad's from Jamaica, so those are. I'm fond of those places, but these, when I've traveled, they're just places that have just, you know how you go to a place and you feel so at home and it just, you, you, not only the warmth, but you feel like, yeah, I, you just feel like you belong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, each of those places seem of, of interest. I've had a few, um, Brazilian artists that have been on oh. and yeah, it's like, oh yeah. It's Brazil's just like, amazing. It's, Brazil's like, it's amazing. all of the black people here. It's, it was literally yeah, what I was told. Exactly. I was like, <laughs> I was like, exactly. Really? And Col Col Colombia nearby also, I, I did, uh, I worked with the first Afro-Colombian minister of culture, minist ministress of culture, uh, Paula Morena Zapata in the early 2000s. And um, that was, an, that I, I forgot about that. That was another amazing experience in Medellin, mm -hmm. in um, Cartagena, Bogota. Yeah. Um, and my daughter-in-law is, is from outside of Bogota. But that, uh, I, I have this natural, just total affinity with Latin America. I dig it. I don't know if it's, part of my heritage or what, but I just do with the people 
I'm simpatico with the people. You send me anywhere there, I'm comfortable. <laughs> I don't I don't speak Portuguese, so I was in trouble in, in Brazil. <laughs> I knew one I knew one phrase. The phrase was I do not speak Portuguese. Non falu non falu portuguese. But if you speak it perfectly, people start speaking to you in Portuguese. <laughs> I know bom dia. That's about it. It's like, uh, oh, like I know bom dia. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see. Uh, which uh, what is one word that you believe to be the most powerful word in the English language? Mm, that's an interesting one. I've gotten some interesting answers on this one. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Well, it it is. It is one of my favorite words, and it's a dual word, so I'm going to cheat a little bit. Spin it. It is about, it is power sharing. And I talk a lot about that here because I think we have to be about that. I think there's no equity and there's no inclusion if you're not sharing power. So an organization like this that is privileged, even though we're small, mm -hmm. that has resources, that has knowledge and expertise, it has to be shared. There is no equitable situation if we're not putting it on the table. And so it's a very, it's become a very... I've, I've inculcated this. It's a it's a way of we have to be here, and we have to be about. Um, so that that's I think that's it's been on my mind a lot, mm -hmm. and a lot of our work centers on that kind of responsiveness. Um, yeah, that's important. That's important. And probably a second one I'd say is transparency. I'm open and transparent, and there there, there has to be transparency. So. Uh, yeah, oh, those are two good ones. Well, two and a half. You, you were cheating a little bit there. I know, I'm, I'm cheating. <laughs> so here, here's... Power sharing has a dash. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll do punctuation in this round. <laughs> uh, so so here's, the, here's the last two. Um, uh, favorite movie with a Baltimore connection. This is the one I was describing earlier that I thought you'd like. Because it oh. brings it down. It's like, all right, was it filmed in Baltimore? Does it feature like like a Thomas Jane, like a Baltimore um, got, like person from Baltimore? Uh, and I do that film series shot in Baltimore. So I, I was kind of thinking in that vein, um, is it something that was like done here? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, Liberty Heights. I really like that. Or like a Barry Levinson movie. Like what comes to mind for you? Well, Bernie Levinson's Diner is a classic. So that, that definitely comes to mind. I wouldn't say it's on my list of because I got tons of favorites. Um, but, you know, and this is a new film that I just think uh, it didn't get enough attention um, by Angel Christie Williams. It's about a black artist, visual artist, making his way in D.C. Mm -hmm. But she's from West Baltimore. It was shot in Baltimore. It's using Baltimore visual artists. It's called Really Love. It's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful uh, contemporary love story. But it's also, we had a discussion here with Bradford Young and Angel and some of the actresses. It was another night like Candyman. And the conversation really was about the portrayal of, you know, an almost exclusively all black cast. There, there were other folks in, certainly. And the portrayals of black people on camera, the, the careful choices made about color, how skin color is represented, background colors. Um, just the patterns and designs in a room. Uh, somebody commented in the audience, this is one of the few times I've seen the, the lead character's entire family. You always hear about the family, but you don't see them yeah. <laughs> when it comes to black films. So that's another one of my favorites. Um, 
I love all of these, uh, uh, as told to God thyself, which was done in 2018 or 19 as a short mm -hmm. done with Kamasi Washington, who I absolutely am <laughs> insane over amazing saxophonist out of Los Angeles. It was shot here by Baltimore filmmakers, the Umachroma Collective. Um, it used the Baltimore School of the Arts. And it is a beautiful short dreamscape, a little more experimental. And I kind of yeah. tend toward the experimental side. I love the core, the experimental, the hybrid. That's great. That's great. So lastly, uh, when you think of Baltimore and describing Baltimore, what are three words that come to mind? I, I gotta have to cheat. <laughs> <laughs> no hyphenations I, three here. Words. Okay, okay, no hyphenation. <laughs> I I guess three words: vibrant, cinematic, ground. Mm. This this is the ground for cinema. I that's how I think of Baltimore. During our festival, it's five days where we're the cinematic ground. But Baltimore is every day this vibrant cinematic ground. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. That is vibrant cinematic ground. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So with that, uh, I want to thank you for coming onto the podcast and want thank to you. want to encourage you to really highlight, plug anything that we haven't hit. Give her those dates. Tell us about the film festival. Here's the oh, the floor is yours. I'm 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 done. I'm, <laughs> I'm turning my mic off. <laughs> <laughs> This is a mic drop moment. Well, so the festival, April 27, next Wednesday through May 1st. You can't miss it. It's 130 short films organized in 16 programs, 21 features from all over the globe. There's a special Baltimore block of short films. There are Baltimore filmmakers involved throughout. So Balti Shorts, it's our fourth edition of this film, made by, for, about Baltimore. Our opening night shorts, is fantastic. One of the shorts, Fuck Em Right Back, by DDM. DDM will be performing before we show the seven short films that are part of that program. John Waters is back with his John Waters Presents, which he's done for 24 years. He's going to be uh, presenting Maps to the Stars, David Cronenberg's film, which barely had a theatrical release. Um, uh, a multi-alumni uh, film filmmaker and attendee of the festival, Stanley Nelson, is bringing two brand new documentaries that'll air on public television this fall, Becoming Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman Visions of Freedom. So they'll be on PBS later this year. He's coming with Nicole London, his co-director, and we're premiering the opening episode of We Own This City, the new David Simon HBO series based on the book by Justin Fenton and about the Baltimore Police Department Gun Trace Task Force. Yeah. So we have, that's a community conversation. Uh, we're going to have nine, I call the resource people, but it's David Simon, uh, his executive producer, Dee Watkins, who was in the writer's room on many of these episodes, Justin Fenton, the writer of the book, uh, community leaders, and a couple of past members for a community conversation to talk about, because it's a tough subject. It's, it's a subject that ticks people off, gets them excited and energized, so we're looking for a really robust conversation. Uh, and then there are just so many beautiful films. I mean, Marvelous in the Black Hole, a family film with a young Asian woman just trying to find her way in a difficult, challenging family situation. And she befriends a magician played by Rhea Perlman. Beautiful 
film called Carmelink that's out of Cambodia. Mm -hmm. uh, Jake Wachtel directed it. He was teaching filmmaking to young kids there in Phnom Penh for a number of years. And they're part of the film. And it's a sort of uh, sci-fi spiritual film. Uh, John Cesare Goff bringing his beautiful film After Sherman um, uh, about his inheritance and family and the Gullah Geechee culture. He's part of that culture sure. and he's going to be inheriting land there. And so it's a hybrid documentary. It's, it's, it's more something that might be right up your street. Um, and Fire of Love, this amazing film about a French couple who are volcanologists and their journey in the 60s and 80s. And they, they were some of the founding uh, photography, footage, and science that informed volcanology today. Wow. And uh, they, they really lived their lives for these volcanoes, and it, it chronicles their time together. It is so beautifully shot. I mean, you get this close to erupting volcanoes, and wow. they step into it. It's just unbelievable, the daredeviling. Beautiful film from Iran called Hit the Road about a family's road trip. And it's by the son of a very famous Iranian filmmaker, Panah, Panahi. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, we really mix it up. It's yeah. just everything, a virtual reality. So there was a, there's a film called We Met Virtual Reality that was shot entirely in VR chat verite. Wow. And a lot of artists were experimenting with VR in the pandemic. So this yeah. whole thing follows the activities of a group of people and their relationships, all VR chat. That's amazing. Hey, I just yeah. like when the, yeah. the the boundaries are extended and that's the thing. It's like, you know, take well, risks we go and for how that. you do things. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And um, lastly, where, where can you check, where can you check things out? Um, what's the website and social media and all that good stuff? Yep, www.mdfilmfest.com, social media, MDFF Parkway. We're on Twitter, we're on uh, Instagram, we're on Facebook. Um, I'm happy to drop a social media kit to you, too, if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> Our marketing director just put that together. Um, so you'll find us there, but definitely the website, mdfilmfest.com, is the easiest, fastest. You can see everything. There's a schedule view, there's a... a of by film A to Z view and on our homepage, everything is right there, all the programs. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for, well, for coming. Thank on. you. No, absolutely. This has been this has been a real treat for the uh, for the day and um, I'll wrap up there, I guess. Um, so for uh, Sandra L. Gibson of the Maryland <laughs> Film Festival. SNF Parkway. I am Rob Lee saying that there is art, film, boundaries, inclusion in and around Baltimore, you just got to look for it.